0: As Vince said, I am Matt Bostrom, and I am recently hired by Grace and Peace as a pastoral assistant or assistant to the pastor or something like that. Um, It is good to be here and bring you the word this morning. And if I haven't met you, I'd love to grab coffee with you, get to know you, Um, so please don't hesitate to reach out to me. Well, anyway, for the last month and a half, Vince has led us through the sermon series Grace and Peace for a Fractured World. He's walked us through the values of this church, values that unite us and give us mission and vision. Things like the gospel, authentic unity, discipleship with Monday in mind, city engagement, and humility on the journey. And today we are looking and focusing on where we get those values from, really where we find all of our life and joy and hope. We're going to dig into the necessity and the beauty of the word of God. The Bible is the very word of God revealed to us. And in the words of God in the Bible, we find the word of God, Jesus Christ. The Bible is the good news about Christ. He is our life. He is our king, our savior, friend, brother, and true husband. We are to seek him there in the Bible, to meditate on him as he is revealed to us in his word. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, which we are looking at this morning, has been one of my favorite passages for probably over a decade. It is full of life and power and truth, and is one that I often turn to in the storms of life. And it calls us to delight again in being called to life by the Word of God. Each November, the Oxford English Dictionary announces a word of the year. The word is one that has cultural impact, deep relevance, and embodies that particular year. And so for 2016, after much discussion and research and debate, the word of the year was post-truth. Post-truth is an adjective relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. We are living in a time when what feels right to you is often more important than what is objectively true. Facts about something don't matter as much as your opinion based on your experience and emotion. Our culture asks us the truth may be out there, but is it really relevant? We see these kind of post truth arguments in politics and sociology and history and basically every field of study. And sadly, we even find it in the church. So many of our churches seem to elevate experience over the actual teaching of Jesus. Church becomes more about an emotional connection with God than actually hearing from his word. In high school, I went to a youth group where the praise band rivaled U2 in terms of passion, volume, and just joy and life. My friend broke his arm while jumping off the back of a chair during worship. (laughs) If you didn't run down the aisle and rededicate your life to Christ about every month, then there was something really wrong with your spirituality. And I'm not saying that those types of churches are evil or wrong. Experiences of God and his nearness are great gifts of his spirit. Our emotions are amazing things given to us by God. There is a reason why we sing songs in worship. Music is deeply rooted in emotion. Praise flows from our hearts that are in love with God. But hear me out. Churches that major in personal experience and emotional appeals and minor in the objective truth of the revealed word of God fall short of the true joy and hope of the gospel. Experience that is not rooted in the deeper truth of God's word is a dangerous place to build our identity. Experience and emotion should confirm what God says is true about us in his word. Experience and emotion that seek to replace the word of God and ru- as a rule and authority are misguided at best and can lead into the idolatry of building a God and a salvation in our own image. If I were to choose one experience from all of history that I would place my faith and trust in Christ in because of, or confirm my trust in him, it would have to be the transfiguration of Christ. Could you imagine being with Peter, James, and John, following Jesus to a top of a high mountain, not knowing what it was going to take place, just going for a walk with your friends and Jesus, a typical Wednesday afternoon prayer walk. But once at the summit, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as brilliant as light itself. This was a brief glimpse into his future glory, majesty, and resurrected power. This was an unveiling of the king of the universe. And then, a glorified Moses and Elijah appeared, speaking with Jesus about the restoration of all things, his supreme fulfillment as the perfect prophet and priest. And if this wasn't enough to rock the senses, the very glory cloud of God the Father descended from heaven and spoke to the disciples, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Wow, I can't imagine a more powerful religious experience. All of your senses being pushed to the threshold of human capacity. Seeing, hearing, touching, and even smelling and tasting the radiant power in the air. For Peter and James and John, this was the ultimate experience. And I'm sure it gave them immense hope and joy and assurance in the midst of future trials as they remembered back to the real, tangible power of the transfiguration. It was the experience of experiences. Yet, listen to what Peter wrote near the end of his life in Second Peter, which Vince read to us earlier. to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In his letter to the churches, Peter doesn't discount his experience. He was an eyewitness to the power and majesty of Christ and heard the very voice of God the Father confirming the majesty of his Son. His experience confirmed the truth about Jesus. But what he says is though the transfiguration was one of the most amazing experiences of his life, that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Scripture, which is the prophetic word of God, is more powerful, more sure, and more confirmed than even that experience. In a post-truth world, objective facts are often viewed viewed as irrelevant, and objective truth claims are scoffed at and ridiculed. Our culture says things like, hey, what feels right to you is cool beans with me. Anything goes, as long as it feels good to you. But into this world, God invites us to trust in the sure promises of his word. He invites us again to taste the truth. Jeremiah writes, your words were found and I ate them. What a phrase. Your words were found and I ate them. Jeremiah could have said anything in this verse. Your words were found and I studied them, loved them, believed in them. Why in the world did he eat them? I think we have to think about the nature of eating. What does it mean that God gave us bodies that need to eat? In the garden, God provided trees to feed Adam and Eve. He was their sustenance and provider. And ever since then, throughout history, food and eating has been a major theme Kingdoms have risen and fallen based on their ability to grow and provide food for their citizens. As creatures, we are always eating. We need energy to do anything and everything, and we get energy from our food. We never reach a point in our lives where we can say, you know what, I don't need food anymore. I've outgrown the need for sustenance. We are dependent for life on the food that we eat. And God didn't have to give us taste buds, but he did. Food is not only necessary, but it's also a joy and satisfying, delicate and bold, savory and sweet. We all love to dwell on a good meal, tasting and savoring the experience and sharing it with others. For our birthdays this year, my wife and I went to four by Brother Luck downtown. And we were treated to eight delicious dishes. And our taste buds loved trying all the unique flavors. They loved, we loved trying different things that we'd never had before. Unique flavors that were brand new to us. We were so satisfied and stuffed at the end of the meal that we couldn't eat another bite, even though there was still dessert in front of us. We couldn't eat it as delicious as it was. But then something funny happened the next morning. I woke up, and I was hungry again. Because no matter how good the meal, how delightful the flavors, how full we are on a Monday night, we are always hungry on Tuesday. And just like our bodies, our souls are always feeding. Just like our bodies, we will always need something to fill our minds and hearts tomorrow. Our souls will either feed on the truth of the word of God or on the lies of this world. So Jeremiah's wording is perfect. Your words were found and I ate them. Jeremiah was given the words of God and he chewed on them, ruminated on them and swallowed them. He took them into into himself and internalized them. British evangelist Gypsy Smith once wrote, many really good people, anxious to do what's right, fall into all kinds of blunders, and some are even led away by popular heresies, which are easy to the flesh, simply because they don't read and don't ponder and don't inwardly digest the living, abiding words of the Lord. In this case, the old saying is true. You are what you eat. If we find ourselves With the words of a world at enmity with God and eating them, we will find ourselves forever at enmity with God. But if we feast on the eternal words of the Lord, we receive eternity with him. God's word is not an optional, optional user manual for the Christian life. It is not a set of good platitudes to live by. It is our very sustenance. We are to eat the words of God, to take them in, digest and process them. In Psalm 34:8 we read, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We are to taste the Lord, to savor him, and see that he is good. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness to turn bread to stones after he'd been fasting for forty days, Jesus rebuked Satan by quoting from Deuteronomy 8:3: Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of of God. Jesus reminds us that the words of God are our daily need. They are the daily need of our souls. Mankind not only needs physical bread, but spiritual bread to survive. And too often, I think we treat the scriptures as a, as a dainty dessert to be sampled every now and then. We treat it like pecan pie at Thanksgiving to have once or maybe twice a year, Thanksgiving and Christmas. But no. The Bible is not pecan pie. It's our bread and butter, our milk and Cheerios, our PB and J. Being in the word is a daily necessity. It's our sustenance. Our quote from the back of the bulletin today comes from R.C. Sproul, who wrote, I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program, in a methodology, in a technique, in anything and everything, but that in which God has placed it, his word. As Christians, our power is found in the Bible. In the Bible, we find Jesus, who is himself our bread of life. Think about this. After Jesus fed the 5,000, the people came running to him the next day, trying to secure more free food. They just wanted another meal. They argued that, hey, Jesus, if you are from God, and if you really are the Savior of the world, then you will feed us again. Then they would believe in him if they did these things. They said, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, "'Sir, give us this bread always.' Jesus said to them, "'I, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst.'" The people just wanted a quick fix of a free meal. Jesus offered them eternal life if they believed in him. He is the bread that never rots or goes stale, and he is the only one that can truly satisfy our souls.'" He is the very word of God, and we're called to meditate upon him. Only he is the one who can satisfy. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And that includes not our physical needs for our daily physical bread, but also our spiritual needs, that we'd be filled with his grace daily. We need to pray that prayer. So the question for us this morning, I think, is where do we find our delight? What is the spiritual food that fuels us? What do we take in and process and try to find our life in? I know that too often for myself, I fill my belly with fast food, the empty calories of this world, rotting trash instead of the riches of his word. I'm not very good at meal planning myself. Some are good at it. I am not. I would probably live on deli meat and chips if it were not for my wife. And she is much better at meal planning than I am. She thinks through, okay, what are we going to have this week? What do I need to get at the store? What, how can I create balance in our meal so we're not just eating the same thing all the time? I'm not good at physical meal planning, and many of you may not be, but we all need to work on spiritual meal planning. We all need to work at being in the Word, at pursuing God where He may be found, at prioritizing life in the Bible. In the chaos of your life, there are so many voices crying out to be heard. Fight to carve out time to hear the truth of God's word. We need to be like Jeremiah. We need to come to God's word and feast. Because as we do so, we will find his words to be a joy and the delight of our hearts. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. Most of us would probably agree that When we go to the Word, we find joy and life there. But I particularly want us to see why this joy is so powerful coming from Jeremiah. You see, Jeremiah learned to delight in the words of God in the midst of desolation. You may not know this, but Jeremiah has been given a nickname, and it's not a very flattering nickname. He's known as the Weeping Prophet. His life was filled with pain, hardship, and trial. His life is a laundry list of woe, and not woe like wow, but woe like despair and misery. Jeremiah was called by God to be a prophet when he was only 20 years old, and he was sent to the warn of the impending judgment upon Judah. He exhorted the people again and again to repent and obey God's word. He warned about the wrath that was to come if they did not heed the message. And everyone, everyone hated what he said. While all the other false prophets had messages of health, wealth, and prosperity for the nation, Jeremiah had messages of doom and gloom, destruction and exile. His hometown actually plotted to kill him, and he was persecuted throughout his ministry. At God's command, he never married. He was a faithful preacher, but in his 40-plus years of ministry, he only had two converts, his scribe and an Ethiopian eunuch who served one of the kings of Judah. These are the only two mentioned in the entire book of Jeremiah who responded with repentance to his preaching in 40-plus years. At one point, Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, openly burned the scroll containing all that the Lord had spoken to Jeremiah. Jeremiah and a scribe had painstakingly written it all down to give to the king, and he burned it, destroying their work in response. What a disappointment and a setback. Jeremiah, throughout the book, weeps bitterly for his country. He watched as Jerusalem was destroyed finally and the temple of Solomon torn down. The very place where God met with his people was burned to the ground before his eyes. He witnessed his nation being deported to Babylon, families being torn apart again and again in the exile. He remained with the people, the broken remnant in Judah, trying to minister to them and heal their wounds while all was held in desolation. He was at last taken against his will to Egypt in his 60s, where he died. Throughout the book of Jeremiah, he felt betrayed by God. He questioned his calling and his purpose. And even in the section where we find Jeremiah 15:16, it is called Jeremiah's complaint. Just a few verses before, in, in verse 10, he cries out, Woe is me, my mother that you bore me. I am a man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent, nor have I borrowed yet all of them curse me. And we might think in Jeremiah's circumstances that after preaching God's word for so long with so little response and so much pain that he would find bitterness. We might even expect Jeremiah to find the words of God a sorrow and a disappointment. He was a prophet, after all, and the very words of God that he was bringing to the people were the things that he was hated the most for, the word of God. And yet, your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. Jeremiah found a deeper joy than what the world can understand. You see, worldly joy is circumstance dependent. Worldly joy looks at what it can see, touch, and feel and says, Yes, you have a right to be happy. Worldly joy dies in the face of trial, pain, discomfort, disease, and death. Jeremiah had nothing in this life to warrant worldly joy, but he owned a richer joy, a deeper joy, a joy that was more full. In the word of God, he found the joy of the Lord. Despite his circumstances, Jeremiah's heart was able to delight. In the face of the storms of life, he had peace. The joy of the Lord allowed Jeremiah a toughness, And a dedication. He had courage to stand up for the truth, even when it meant that everyone hated him. He had patience to talk with stubborn countrymen and foolish kings. He had faith to look upon the ruin of his city and know that God would keep his promises and would restore his people. Jeremiah could persevere without family, without friends, without land or property, because the joy of the Lord is not circumstance dependent. And this is a truth that I have to teach myself every day. Every day, fresh trials and uncertainties seek to steal my joy in the promises of God. I don't know why the pains and trials of my life and certain circumstances were given to me. And I don't know why the agonies and sufferings of your life were given to you. I don't know why we have to walk through certain valleys of death and loss or why... Certain temptations chronically plague us. But I do know that God is good. I do know that you can trust in him. I do know that no matter what happens in the future, nothing can rip us away from our father's loving arms. You see, I may not know where God will lead me or you, any of us next year, but I know where we will all be in 100 years. I may not understand or be able to control the circumstances around me, but I do know that I am a son of the king and I am called in whatever place and circumstance I am in to proclaim his kingdom. I know that my happiness in the things of the world and the things that the world values is insignificant to the joy that is found in the words of God. We need to run to him in his word to show us over and over again that our true delight is in him. We need to eat his words to bask in their hope. In your life, what circumstances seek to steal your joy and trust in him? Are you suffering through chronic pain? Do you live with the chronic emotional pain of broken relationships, unrelenting anger, or hopeless fear? Are you numb from the devastation of other people's decisions in your life, or maybe even your own decisions that have left your life in ruins? Have the world, the flesh, and the devil planted so many thorns into you that you think there is no way that God could ever love you or make you whole again. We need the words of God. We need the words of God to hear again that he loves us, that we are called by his name in Christ. Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Jeremiah found the words of God. He took them in, he ate them up, and those words became to him as joy and delight because he discovered in the word of God that he is called by the very name of God. The words of God have power and joy in the life of the believer because the words of God root us in and unite us to Christ. Here's the deep message and truth of the Bible, whereas Vince would say, here's the deal, here's the deal. The Lord, the God of hosts, has looked upon you and said, because of Christ, you are mine and I am yours. You are mine and I am yours. God has called us into relationship with himself and given us his name. In the Bible, God has many names. His names describe his attributes and his character. They affirm his power. And here, Jeremiah uses the name, the Lord, God of hosts. This is a name that cannot be thwarted. The God of hosts is mighty in power, majestic in holiness. This name of God is is used in the Old Testament 43 times. And in Jeremiah, we see a quarter of those times. The God of hosts was very significant to Jeremiah because think about his life. He was despised by almost everyone, constantly surrounded by a host of enemies. He was rejected by the last four kings of Judah. He often felt helpless and alone. The God of hosts, the commander of the angelic armies, was Jeremiah's defender and his true king. Jeremiah was called by the God of hosts, who is also the Lord. The Lord, in small caps in this verse and the rest of our Bibles, is the designation of Yahweh, the covenant name of God. This name is the personal name of God, revealed to and reserved for the covenant people of Israel. So Jeremiah's joy and delight come not only from being called by the almighty name of God, but this covenantal, personal, familial name. The Lord, the God of hosts, is majestic in power and intimate in love. Jeremiah found his identity in this name. He was known, he was loved, he was protected, and he had hope in being called by God. Names have deep power and meaning for the Bible and for us. They unite and they identify. Like many of you, I grew up in a Christian home, but unlike many of you, I was not born into that home. I was adopted when I was two months old after my parents were told they would not be able to have children biologically. So they adopted me and named me Matthew, which means gift of God, because God had given them a son after years of prayers and tears. A few years ago, I I called my mom to ask about my initial original birth certificate. I never had seen it, and I was curious about what had happened to it. She said that on the day that my adoption was finalized, I was given a new birth certificate. The old birth certificate was destroyed and forgotten. I was given a new identity. I was their son, Matthew Joseph Bostrom. Adoption is a part of my story, and it's it's a part of your story, too. You see, we've all been adopted into the family of God, the greatest glory and privilege imaginable. And like myself, we've all been given a new identity in this family. We are sons and daughters of the king. He has even given us a new birth certificate. We are told in multiple places throughout the Bible that there is a book of life. In, in Revelation 13:8, the title of this book is disclosed to us. The book of life of the Lamb who was slain. All those who belong to God have their names written in the book of life. And the names in the book are not written and then later erased on a whim, but rather they have been indelibly etched from the foundation of the world by the word of God. If you have trusted in Christ, then your name, my name is in there even now and it will remain there forever because the the ink that writes our names in the book of life is the blood of Christ, the Son of God. He has died so that we might be adopted in. We have been called into the greatest family imaginable, named into the family of God. Think about what the disciples heard at the Mount of Transfiguration. The heavens opened, and God the Father's voice bore witness about Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that identity is true about you as well. Right now, regardless of your circumstances, God the Father looks at you and he says, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, in you I am well pleased. In Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, Jeremiah's joy is rooted in the fact of this new identity. And like him, we are called and named by God. We have been united to Christ in his life and death and in the power of his resurrection. My dad, my earthly father, the man who adopted me, who called me his own and raised me as his son, died two years ago. And last month on the anniversary of the day that we buried my dad, I rode his bike to Evergreen Cemetery and I was able to spend an hour or so at his graveside um, reflecting and praying and really seeing the goodness of God. About 30 feet west of where my dad is buried is the gravestone of Karen Hardison. I don't know anything about Karen other than that she died a few days after her 46th birthday in 2016. What impacted me about her headstone are the words that are carved under her name. They read, Karen Hardison, made alive with Christ. Isn't that the greatest thing you could ever put on your grave? Made alive with Christ. Amidst that field of death was this beacon of truth and hope. And I couldn't stop the flow of tears as I thought about my dad and Karen and so many others in that place who were lifeless in the ground, whose bodies were, but at that moment were and are alive with Christ. I imagined the glory of the resurrection day, When those dead bodies will be raised up with power imperishable and will burst from the ground to meet with their Lord in the air. When the pain of this life and death will be no more and God himself will wipe every tear from our eyes. When all that is wrong will be made right. When all creation will be renewed and restored into the perfected paradise of God with us. God with his people. What an experience that resurrection day will be. But we, this church, we do not have to wait for the day of the Lord to know the joy of the Lord. We have the truth of his promises, the confidences of his grace now. We have the words of God fully confirmed to us today. Words with power, words like those we read in our assurance from Isaiah 43. But now, thus says the Lord, who who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And though the rivers and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. What greater hope or dignity could we dream than that? to be called by the name of God. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? As the hymn reminds us, what more could God say to us than what he has already said to us in his word? What greater riches could God give to us than we find there in Christ? Seek him where he may be found where he has already revealed himself to us and promises to meet with us again and again and again. We live in a post-truth world. We live in a world that wants us to find our hope and joy in naming ourselves by finding our own unique paths apart from God, unhampered by the stifling claims of an antiquated religion. We live in a world that says we don't need God or his word to be whole but I pray that you fight this lie. I pray that we would be known as the people of God's word, people who love to taste and see his goodness. I pray that grace and peace would be a church that knows that we are named by God and belong to him, and we would boldly proclaim that truth to the world. So take heart with Jeremiah. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for its truth, for its power in our lives. God, I pray that we would be quick to run to it. Lord, I know there are so many things in this world and in ourselves that keep us from running to your word daily. And Lord, I pray that you break those down. I pray that you would make time in your word a priority in our lives that we would seek you there and find our joy and delight and rest in you. God, we thank you that these things are not, Lord, they are not um, temporary, but they are eternal. They are not given on a whim and later revoked, but Lord, you have said these things and you are the God who cannot lie and you have promised these things to us. God, I pray that we would be quick to delight in you, to run to you always. In your name we pray, amen.